You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. I just remember thinking to myself, Lifetime Mariner ain't no way Ken's gonna leave. I mean, I know he's talked about it with us privately. You know, a few times about going, man, if they don't, then I'm gonna kind of thing. And I remember some of the whispers of what the numbers could possibly be if he ended up staying in Seattle. And, you know, them numbers was 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 unheard of, you know, kind of at that time. As the 1999 season ended, Junior was headed into the last year of his contract with Seattle and the Mariners weren't in the playoffs. Griffey was coming off his 10th straight All-Star season and his 10th straight Golden Glove. But the Mariners were coming off back-to-back below 500 seasons, and they hadn't sniffed the playoffs since 97. The 2-2 to Buehner. He struck him out, and the Red Sox win. At the time, the Griffeys lived in Orlando, Florida in the offseason. And Ken's oldest son, Trey, was five years old, and he was about to start school. The small time that Ken got to spend with his kids during the season was about to get smaller. That year, as October came around, the Yankees and Braves had made their way to the 1999 World Series. Hit sharply to short. Jeter's up with it. And that's the way Game 2 ends in Atlanta. On the Monday between Game 2 and Game 3, the sports world paused, but not because of baseball. Good evening. There has been a freakish fatal accident involving a Learjet flying across the country. The plane was this 23-year-old Lear 35, and on board... Payne Stewart, one of the country's top golfers. This was him winning the U.S. Open this year for the second time. Payne Stewart was a friend and neighbor of Ken's in Orlando. And a week after the crash happened, Ken requested a trade from the Mariners. In an interview with the Seattle Times, Griffey said that Stewart's loss was a factor in him leaving Seattle. He said, quote, On Monday, his wife and daughter kissed him goodbye. 45 minutes later, he's not there anymore. According to Sports Illustrated, the only teams that Ken was willing to be traded to at the time held their spring training near Orlando. That was the Atlanta Braves, the Houston Astros, the New York Mets, and the Cincinnati Reds, his hometown team. On February 10th, 2000, after 11 seasons with the Mariners, Ken Griffey Jr. was traded to the Cincinnati Reds. I'm happy to be here, and I really don't know what to say. I mean, this is something that you dream of as a little kid and finally did it. I finally back in the hometown where I watched so many great ballplayers play. I get to go on the field. To be honest, even as the decision that he, you know, inevitably ended up making, he never really tipped his cap to me, you know, completely about what his decision was. And I remember trying to kind of, I don't know, deflect or not except the fact that there was a real possibility that he might leave town. In response to Griffey leaving the Mariners, current ESPN host Michael Wilbon wrote a column about this, while at the time with the Washington Post. And he called BS on all of it. He wrote, quote, I'm not buying for one second this junk Ken Griffey Jr. is throwing out there about needing to leave Seattle because his family is in Florida, 
because he was somehow jolted into reality by the tragic airplane crash that claimed the life of his friend Payne Stewart, blah blah blah. Hardly anybody in sports says what they mean anymore. Wilbon goes on. This is all just a bunch of junk, because it's not about family. It hardly ever is, even though athletes throw it out there all the time, hoping to spin their way into favor with fans and, therefore, corporate sponsors. Hiding behind, quote, family is the new athletic pastime. Wow. Wow. Uh, one thing I do know about Ken is that he was devoted to being a husband and he was devoted to being a father. And I know the closeness of his family. I have spent time with his mom and his dad and us, you know, sitting in the other room playing cards and having a good time. And his mom is in the kitchen cooking up something or with senior and watching TV and everybody's, you know, around the house. I've spent time around their family just being family and everyone was there and present. So what they perceive from the outside, if Michael Wilbon has spent time with Ken in his home, I'd probably respect it a little bit more. But if all you've done is seen him in press conferences and things like that, all-star game, and you just, y'all just kind of hung out and you think you understand him well, okay, there, I call BS back on him. To people in the national media at the time, like Michael Wilbon, Junior switching teams was a bit of a head-scratcher. But Junior and the media weren't the only sides with the perspective on this trade. There was also Cincinnati. I think it's really exciting. I enjoyed watching Ken Griffey Sr., and I can't wait. I think it'll just make the team. I think they get an all-star. They're going to get a home run hitter, and, and uh, the Reds are on track. We're going to get a new stadium in a couple of years. We're going to start rolling. To Reds fans and their media, Ken's decision was clearly a good one. I totally remember that day. and like, oh, man, the Reds are going to be really good. That's C. Trent Rosecrans. I go by Trent. Trent is a senior MLB writer for The Athletic, but he used to be a beat writer for the Cincinnati Inquirer when Junior was on the team. There was so much expectation. You know, he was a savior. I mean, it was like they had won. It was like they had won the World Series. What were the Reds like before Junior showed up? Well, I mean, in 99, they were really good. People still revere that 99 team as just one of those fun teams that, that just nearly came out of nowhere to get to a one-game playoff. So it was like adding Ken Griffey Jr. was like adding a piece that's going to take them from here to there. Right. And then they just never did. I'm Alex Ford. I'm Kola Malik. And this is American Prodigy. Let's back up to that 1999 season. That year, Ken was coming off back-to-back 56 home run seasons and coming to the end of a four-year, $34 million contract. The Mariners were in the best position of any team to offer Junior the most money when his contract ran out, so they offered him an extension of eight years, $138 million. I don't think you can overstate the importance of Ken Griffey Jr. to the Seattle Mariner franchise and to the fact that we're here today. That's Chuck Armstrong. He was the president of the Mariners at the time. If we hadn't had the 95 comeback, I doubt that Major League Baseball would be here today. And our ballpark's the house that Griffey built. And when I look back, I take great pride in the ballpark. In 99, Seattle finished building a $517 million stadium called Safeco Field. It was completed in the middle of the season, 
So Griffey only played at Safeco for about three and a half months. The Mariners played the first half of that season at the Old Kingdom. That was really the end of an era because Griffey had played more games at the Kingdom than any other player. His last game there was a spectacle. Well, we're going to have the flash bulb go off quite a bit now. We're talking about Junior here, so just like his first hit ever at the Kingdom, his last hit was also a home run. Here's the pitch on the way to Junior, swinging a drive deep to right field, down the line, there it goes! Goodbye baseball, he did it! Holy smoke, Ken Griffey Jr. After that, the Mariners moved into Safeco Field, which had the snazzy nickname, the house that Griffey built as an homage to just how much Junior himself had built the Mariners up with his own hands and bat. Change was in the air in 99. New stadium, Griffey contract talks, baseball being just a season removed from one of its most exciting summers ever, where Griffey put up a fight against McGuire and Sosa in the home run chase. Baseball was back in a big way, and Ken was cementing his role in its return, as well as in Seattle's sports history. Ken is clearly our icon. I said there's a statue of him in front of the ballpark. But then, after only playing half of a season at Safeco Field, Griffey was gone. Ken Sr. had always told him that no team will treat you as well as your first team. And and there were things about 1999 and, and Ken's departure that there, there's a lot of things in there that, that are are very personal that I, I know that I don't really want to talk about publicly, but I understood why he left. Me and you was both known by the alias kid. You was swinging them bats and I was swinging them tracks at 18. Musically, it's a nice full circle because I know you, you, you put out Do Your Thing when he left. Indeed. As like a, I, I'm not, I, don't, I don't love what's happening, but I'm happy that you're doing your thing and, and you're following your footsteps that you want to go in. They were, man. I mean, do you see? I mean, you obviously see that's how much of an influence that Ken grew to be in my life. I kid, I kid you not, man. I mean, Ken making a move, you know, away from the city and behind the city has, has spawned like projects out of me, man. I mean, that's how much I just admire that dude, man, as an mm-hmm. athlete and, you know, um, and as a and as a man. You left the void in safe coast center field will never be the same, but do your thing. I feel you. It ain't about the dough. Family first, gang next. You already paid. Check it. I hate to see you go, but I know if you got to go, then you got to I guess I don't know if you've ever experienced a friend moving away that was really close to you when you were younger, you know, and you're like, you're not really ready to accept the fact, even when they tell you that there's a possibility they might be leaving town or moving or whatever. And then when it really happens, you know, you're kind of like, whoa. Kohler released Do Your Thing in 2000 on an album called From the Cradle. That was the last album Kohler would release for nearly a decade. Kohler had a family and kids of his own, and the income from album sales wasn't like the old days. Between all the bankruptcies and buyouts among the companies that had represented Kid Sensation, Kohler got screwed over. My main living no longer was from my royalties. It took me years, man, to get my master's back and to get all that stuff back. I missed out on, you know, hundreds of thousands of sales, which, you know, it, it equated to millions of dollars. I missed out on all of that because Ugh. of, uh, yeah. Probably would have been nice when you when you had young kids to be getting that, too. Absolutely. That's why we, uh, as, as hip-hop, it's a little different than sports, man. Those guys can go, you know, Ken doesn't have to walk up to, you know, someone, you know, before the game and talk to the team president and make sure that he gets paid before he goes out and hits the ball, you know. I had to just be creative and inventive, man, and only God knows how I made it through some of those, uh, some of those years, man. 
Kola still had his studio, so the focus shifted from recording songs himself to producing, selling studio time, and any other kind of audio work that came through. Eventually it all worked out, but it was a grind. Just how Kola had come up in music in the first place. It was just the life, you know, the, the phase of life that I went through, man, right? And, you know, and, and I've rebounded from it, but the bottom line is it was part of my journey, man. And I started fighting hard and, you know, and I found my way and started to figure those things out. Meanwhile, Cola's friend Ken was making headlines for an entirely different financial situation. The deal that Junior had signed with the Reds was for nine years, $116.5 million. Remember, the extension that he could have signed with Seattle was for eight years and $21 million more. In other words, Griffey took a big pay cut to leave Seattle. So to help me make sense of this, I want to bring in our baseball consultant on the show, and that's Gabriel Baumgartner. Hey, Gabriel. Hi, Alex. <laughs> How's it going? Good. Uh, Gabe, you wrote for SI for years. You're a freelance sports writer now. Um, but you were the one I needed to talk to to like make sense of baseball contracts because it's the driest thing I could imagine <laughs> researching. So what was the context of this massive contract that Ken Griffey signed and yet, even that was probably a discount for him. You know, his contract is, it's really one of the most unusual ones, at least of my lifetime. Uh, and a big reason for that is that Griffey is the most marketable player in baseball, bar none, at this time. That, in this era, especially in baseball, translated to more money for players. As in, like, you could throw up a big, a big, poster of Ken on the stadium and you're going to sell more tickets. That's exactly right. But if you look at his annual salary and before he signs a contract and after he signs the contract, there are players ahead of him that make more money than him who devoted baseball fans have forgotten about at this point. Carlos Delgado is oh, is 13.6 million in Toronto at the time, soon to go. I thought to, he played in the NBA. Oh, I'm thinking of Carlos Delfino. Excuse you're me. You're thinking of Carlos Delfino. Exactly, <laughs> right? So if Carlos, Delgado, if Carlos Delgado were right. like a wing for the Raptors, right? So you just confused <laughs> a guy. You just confused okay. Got a dude uh, that made more money than Ken Griffey Jr. Yeah, right? And so it's like, it it, it is just just bizarre and yet in hindsight i mean it's defensible i guess but it's like it is hindsight is brutal junior arrived in cincinnati just before the winds began to shift in the mlb in terms of how players were valued if you've seen the movie or read the book moneyball this is what it chronicles in the simplest terms this is the decade when the kinds of contracts that junior signed start to be questioned by front offices starting with the oakland a's they start asking, does paying a lot for stars actually lead to winning? Owners used to pay players for what they had done, not what they will do. Oakland figures out that that is a, a terrible way to do business. You know, this guy who was really good when he was 26 year old is now 34 and he's off his second knee surgery. So I don't really care how good he was seven years ago because now he's devouring a large part of the payroll. But let's remember that in 2000, when Junior came to the Reds, he was as relevant a ball player as ever. He led the American League in home runs the previous season, and there was nothing to suggest that he'd stop being one of the best players in the game anytime soon. And again, he could have taken more money, but didn't. Everything about the game these days is payroll flexibility. He gave the Reds that before it was cool to be flexible with your payroll. But what happens 
is he becomes one of these standard bears for guys, or like for the mistake not to make for for teams, and that it's just it it is just a really deep irony because he did the Reds a huge favor with the contract that he signed at that point in his career. Junior came into Cincinnati healthy, without any real chronic injuries. But he certainly had a history of sacrificing his body to make the play. Once, in a game at the Kingdom back in 1995, Griffey chased a deep ball towards the fence at a full sprint. On the run, Diaz and Griffey. Griffey up against the wall, jumps up, and he makes the catch and crashes into the fence! He leaps directly into the wall with no regard and saves the extra run. A young, beautifully mustached Randy Johnson collapses on the pitcher's mound in relief. What an amazing play. One of the best catches I have ever seen at any time. The thing is, Junior dove into the wall so hard for that catch that he broke his left wrist. Had to get surgery, a plate, five screws. He was out for three months. That dude does not know anything besides playing that game at 110%, and that's it. He does. I don't think he has a chill gear. You know, I think it's like he could have protected himself very, very easily. He could have said, well, I'll, I'll just let that one bounce off the wall, and I'll, I'll get it, and we'll, maybe they'll end up with a double, you know. But that's just not his, his flow, man. He gave, it his, he gave it his all. Back to the warning track. The wall makes the leap. He is down at the 380 marker, and it's one of the most incredible catches you will ever want to see. There is no way a human being gets to that ball. He gets up, and everybody, 30,000 people up. It was that competitive, jaw-dropping athlete that the Reds were expecting when they acquired Ken in the trade. And that's pretty much who they got that first season. Swung on, fly ball, deep right field. Junior has homered for the first time as a Red. Junior had a good first year with the Reds, despite a nagging hamstring injury. 40 homers, 117 RBIs, 145 games played, and his 11th straight All-Star appearance. The Reds went 85-77 and and finished second in their division. But the next year, in 2001, during spring training, Junior was trying to score from second base when he pulled up with an injury. He'd aggravated that old hamstring injury from the previous year. Then in 2002, he hurts his right knee in a base rundown and only plays 70 games. In 2003, he only plays 53 games because he dislocates his right shoulder, diving for a fly ball. Some Reds fans even booed him in the stadium after it happened. In 2004, at age 34, he starts returning to form, and he's named an all-star. But then, halfway through that season, he again injures his hamstring, this time making a sliding catch in the outfield. I remember him coming and showing me the scars from his surgery, and he is one of the most optimistic, sort of like, ah, you know, it happens, and I'm good. I'm going to keep on flowing. He seemed to have this uncanny ability to take whatever happened and just just flow and just flow with it. It just never, it never seemed to like break his spirit. He didn't seem down or frustrated or like, oh man, I can't play. And you know, and he just, I just never saw that from him myself. You know, he had several surgeries and like, you know, those injuries, people always go on the injuries that he had. That's Trent Rosecrans again, the former Reds beat writer. When you're not living up to your own standards of what you have set on the field, it had to have made it tougher. 
and all his injuries came on the field when he was trying to make something happen and when he was going and, and competing his hardest. I think one of the things is with great athletes, it looks so effortless. And because it looks effortless, people assume it is. You know, that's why there's always, you know, the gritty guy that makes everything look tough. You know, Pete Rose didn't make anything look easy. He looked like he was trying for every bit. And this town loved him. With Ken, everything looked so easy. And our eyes can lie to us. And I think it's 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 false to say everything was easy because it looked easy. Ken Griffey Jr. never made anything look hard. And so people assumed it wasn't. Junior's contract wasn't even halfway complete at this point. And his Reds tenure so far was just a lot of time on the injured reserve. Not what Reds fans had expected. But I think he definitely felt like people had a higher expectation for him here. And that people felt disappointed. You always would hear people and he felt like, you know, maybe... People were tougher on him because he was from here and it was somewhere else. And that, that, oh, why'd you have your best years in Seattle? It's like, it's not his choice. You know, you want to be this. That's the one thing about moving home. Everyone knows your story and where you came from. And for Junior in Cincinnati, the name Ken Griffey was synonymous with World Series winning teams. It was a shadow. He never got the team accolades that his dad got because his dad was on perhaps the greatest teams ever. His dad was one of the great eight, as they're known. You know, the great eight is still a thing. And Ken Griffey Sr. was part of the great eight. And then Ken Griffey was his kid. I, I think people felt like he let the city down, and I think that's so unbelievably unfair. I think the city let him down. He gave his all, and nothing he did was going to be good enough. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The compounding effect of Griffey's injuries in Cincinnati slowed him down, for sure. But he was still Ken Griffey Jr. High in the air, left center field, Edmonds back, warning track, it is off the wall. Griffey around second, he's going to third, Robinson picks it up, they're going to send him, here comes the throw, how about this, it's over, inside the park, over, the Reds have won it, how about that? He started putting together decent seasons with the Reds, and even had another All-Star year in 2007. But that same year, the Reds moved him from center field to right field, which is a significant shift for someone who was known as the best center fielder of his generation. And as much as it was a tactical move by the Reds, it was a symbolic one for Griffey. When he was asked by reporters if this was the equivalent of becoming a designated hitter, he said, quote, not even close. I still get to go out and play the field. Even at age 37, the kid felt like he got to go play. Again, Trent Rosecrans, 
So let's even just go to, you know, 37. It's like, oh man, he hit 30 home runs, drove in 93, you know, had an OPS of 119 that year, was an all-star in 2007. He was still a good player, but he looked like a 37-year-old version of a guy who was once great and is still pretty good. There's no shame in that. But Barry Bonds at 37 hits <laughs> 46 home runs and has a 268 OPS plus. Barry Bonds hit 370 that year with 46 home runs. It was the second of his four MVPs. And he's 37 and he's doing that. Whew. Ken Griffey Jr. looks like someone who was 37. And so he aged like a normal person through those years. So you go from God level down to mortal. Comparing Junior to some of his contemporaries that aged better than he did, like Barry Bonds, for example, isn't so easy anymore. The steroid scandal that had been simmering through the 90s exploded in the mid-2000s. In 2005, Jose Canseco released his book, Juiced. He chronicled his own use of performance-enhancing drugs and named several other players that he said were doping at the time. Mark McGuire, Juan Gonzalez, Rafael Palmero, and Jason Giambi, to name a few. Even Griffey's old teammate, Alex Rodriguez, said he was doping during this time. I did, I did take a banned substance, and um, you know, for that, uh, I'm very sorry and deeply regretful. Yet again, just over a decade from the 94 strike, the sanctity of America's pastime was under scrutiny. Another sitting president addresses an MLB problem in the national spotlight, this time in the State of the Union address. The use of performance-enhancing drugs like steroids in baseball, football, and other sports is dangerous, and it sends the wrong message that there are shortcuts to accomplishment and that performance is more important than character. So tonight I call on team owners, union representatives, coaches, and players to take the lead, to send the right signal, to get tough, and to get rid of steroids now. When, when all the doping scandal stuff came out, I mean, where, where were you at as a baseball fan, and how, is that, how did that affect you today? I was just falling in love with a sport that I never knew growing up. It took that and it just sort of tainted it, man. It made me just think, wow, I mean, you know, I, I, I love the skill and the strength and the power and the precision that you have to have to hit a ball out of a, out of a ball field, man. But then you're like, how many guys cheated and who did and who didn't? And it's like, how do you sort that out in your mind? By the time the steroid scandals became public knowledge in the mid-2000s, Griffey was on the back half of his Reds contract. And at that point, he wasn't really vying for home run records anymore. You must have had a feeling or a thought, at least, when all that came out of going, like, did, did my friend do that? Was Ken doping at all? That must have crossed your mind. Nope. Nope. Not at all for a second? <laughs> never, never thought for a second that Ken did it because Ken was not this guy who, right, like just went in the gym, man, and just went at it all the time, right? I mean, Ken just, he was naturally gifted, man. I know that when you when you do those things, you have to kind of augment it with the working out. You got to put in that kind of, you know, work as well. And, and Ken was not that gym rat dude, man. He was just naturally gifted. He showed up at at spring training and probably shed a, a little bit of the winter weight and just was was in his mode. His edge was just being who he was and taking that natural gift and, uh, and, and running with it. 
something. And I just don't know if the if the risk was worth the reward for him. He's talked about this in interviews since then. And his, his reason is like, look, I looked up to my dad. I know he didn't cheat. He won the World Series. I don't want my kids to look at me and think I cheated. I just can't. I don't want to be that as a father. Uh, as his main motivation. And and he doesn't want people to look at his career and go, hmm, like something was wrong there. Um, no, it's all clean. It's all it's all on the surface, I think, with him. I've, I've never heard him be asked that question, nor his answer, but I'm not surprised to hear him say and to involve his role as a father. That answer doesn't surprise me. Something that's clear when you look at all the tape is that in almost every important turn of Junior's career, Ken Griffey Sr. is there at the scene. First, he's who Junior talks about in his first pro interview in the minor leagues. He said, call home as much as you want, because I know it's going to be hard. I called home as much as possible. Uh And he didn't know I was going to call home every day. So (laughs) he said, "Uh, your signing bonus may go to us, the phone bill. Then he's joining the team that drafted his son arguing about which jersey should say junior or senior. I've been around a lot longer. You should get junior. But you came on my team. No, so that means you get senior. He's next to him in the batting lineup for his rookie season. Father has a base hit, sends it to play. This is history. Then he's retired, sitting in the stands, watching his beloved Reds when his son hits his 500th career home run on Father's Day. The pitch. And a high drive. Hit back into Junior has just knocked the door down to the 500 club. And boy, what a Father's Day gift for Senior. What was that like the first time you saw uh, Ken and his dad around each other and sort of got to see sort of where he'd come from and, and his relationship with his dad? So we traveled over to... Uh... To, to Cincinnati one time and this wild kid was still playing for the Mariners and we um and we we're staying the night at uh at, at at Ken's parents house and so senior had just bought his his wife his mom uh, Ken's mom he had just bought her this brand new Mercedes Ken's mom had parked their new car behind Ken's so they just decided to take the new one out to go get some Wendy's as we pulled out from the Wendy's you know Ken pulls off you know kind of driving a little fast and I spill a biggie drink in the bottom, like all in the passenger side, I, my whole drink just tips over, and all the ice and Sprite just falls all on the mat, man, and all in the in the in the in the car. So we go head over to the car wash, man. We're trying to clean it out and vacuum it out, and it's like we're two like little teenagers. We're grown men, man, but we're trying to hide the fact that we <laughs> spilled Sprite in in his mom's car, and it just it just really made me feel like almost like a brother to Ken, and almost like. That was our mom, and we were trying not to get in trouble. And it's just weird. I just, Ken's mom was so sweet and kind to me, and his his dad was always so cool. It was almost like I felt, I don't know, adopted into the family, man. So when I grew up, the number of families and and, and friends that I had that had a mother, a father, and the kids all at home. I could I could count on one on one hand and I wouldn't even need to use all my fingers, man. It was rare. Fathers were rare. Every time I think about like the relationship with you and Ken and and like how how different backgrounds you came from as far as your family structure, as far as like, I mean, going to Rainier Beach High School versus Moeller High School in Cincinnati. I mean, I can't think of two more different high schools. I can't think of like 
two more different parent situations than what you had and what Ken had. Um, and so the fact that you guys connected so deeply in state of touch, despite having such different places you came from, I mean, did you ever feel jealous of Ken that time of having that dad, having that life that he came from that, that you didn't really know? Man, I, you know, that's such a good question. And can, if I can be really, really honest with you, it wasn't jealousy, but it was hurt. I wish I had somebody to tell me some of the things that his dad probably told him, you know, and, and so it's like, gosh, what would my life could have been? My father was in the military, and so he moved up to uh, Seattle. That's how the military is, how our family got here. And we were we were babies, man, when he got I guess called into you know service. My brother and I have a year apart, and we were babies, man. We were young when he went. I guess like on his last tour or whatever the case is. And so, you know, he came back from a lot of that. Just really changed. My mom said he just wouldn't talk. He just wasn't the the, the same light that was alive in him when he left. When he came back, it was just it was just all all but snuffed out, you know. And so he just literally came back home and was like, "Yo, I." I, I don't want to be a husband and a parent anymore. Did you think about that when he when he moved to Cincinnati full time was on the Reds? Did, did you feel like you, you maybe were not just losing Ken, but a little bit of like being a part of his family at all? Yeah, in, in a way I did. I, I did because, man, that was the only real like kind of healthy kind of family vibe that I that I really felt that kind of connection to. And so, yeah, man, it, it, it did. It felt a little bit. It felt a little bit weird. I mean, when I think about it, I haven't seen Senior since Seattle. Wow. I didn't even think about that. So I know that you're about a year younger than Ken, um, but you guys, I think, had kids around the same time. So, yeah, tell me about becoming a father. I had my my first son. I was... uh... 18 years old when he was, uh, when he was born, man. So I was just kind of trying to find my way as a, as a man, you know, and, um, becoming a father really bonded, uh, uh Ken and I in that way too, man. It's like once he had a son and, you know, just kind of seeing him go through that whole experience and me laughing at him, you know, saying, man, you're going to put the diaper on backwards and all that kind of cool stuff. It just was cool, man. Watching him grow through that phase and us kind of, you know, see some of those similarities and me feeling like I was now uh, able to offer him a little advice, man, on how it's going to go. You know, it was cool. What's the most important thing you think you taught Ken about parenthood? <laughs> well, I don't want to take credit and act like I really am just like, you know, the the oracle that taught him how to be, <laughs> you know, a father. But as a father, just being present, bro. We're going to make mistakes, man. But go ahead and make your mistakes along the way. But be present and uh, and put your heart into it as as you go. I always tell this joke to people. I say, you know, to my um, to my youngest, uh, you know, I always tell him, I say, man, you got the benefit of the father who I was to your sister, your brother and your oldest. You know, and then I say to my daughter, I say, well, you know, you got the benefit of the father I was to your two older brothers. I say to my second oldest son, hey, man, you got the benefit of your older brother. And I say to my oldest, hey, my bad. <laughs> my bad, dog. <laughs> The back half of Junior's career was really all about one thing, being present. Ken ultimately wanted to leave Seattle to gain more of it, more family presence. And he did it right after watching a family that he knew paint Stewart's in Orlando 
lose the presence of their own father. So Ken went home to Cincinnati, where he could be more present with his family. And also, to the place where everything started, his hometown. A place where the legacy of his own father was present. Someone says, well, if he cared more about winning, then he would have stayed in Seattle because that's where the winning was going to happen. I would argue that perhaps if you know the man, he would tell you he did win. But once he was in Cincinnati, Ken struggled with another type of presence, one on the field, one on the box score. He showed up every day, but injury after injury kept his body from performing like it used to. And this is what the first three episodes of this series have basically been about. Ken's work presence, his presence in baseball, pop culture, and what effect each of these had on Ken and his teams. But there's another type of presence that Ken had that we haven't discussed yet. And it's one that's slowly been disappearing for decades. It's Ken's presence in baseball as a black man. Ken Griffey Jr. is arguably one of the last black baseball superstars. Whether or not that holds true remains to be seen, but the fact that it's even a question has a lot of implications. For a sport that's always been known as America's pastime, baseball can't seem to stay in touch with America. That's next time on American Prodigy. This Blue Wire podcast was co-hosted by me, Alex Ward, with Kola Malik. Production and writing by myself, Caroline Losnick, and Jessica Bodiford. Editing by me and John Yales. Our music and theme song is by Kola Malik, with additional scoring by Robbie Carver. Our production coordinator is Devin Shepard. Our baseball consultant is Gabriel Baumgartner. And our research assistance was by Walter Heyman. The executive producers for American Prodigy are John Yales and Peter Moses. If you liked American Prodigy, subscribe and give us a rating and review. It helps the podcast get to more people and maybe, just maybe, sell more Reds Griffey jerseys. See you next time.